Well, good morning. The last few weeks we've been talking about ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church from the Greek word ekklesia, meaning congregation or gathering or church. And last week we talked about church governance, especially uh, organizational or denominational structure with the question of what is kind of the authority relationship between various local churches, which brings us naturally to the question of what about authority within a local church? So we need to talk about church officers. What is a church officer? Well, Wayne Grudem defines it as a church officer is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. Now, when Grudem says church, he means a local church, not the universal church. Uh, last week, we, d- we discussed whether or not a church officer has official responsibilities within multiple congregations in uh, Episcopalian forms of governance or Presbyterian forms of governance. They do, but in congregational churches, they don't. There may be an occasional exception where a missionary is uh, temporarily pastoring two churches or something like that, but in general... Church officers are limited to one individual church. They hold that position within only one local church. So within the local church, we have a couple of offices, namely elders and deacons, whereas within the universal church, there is another office, that of apostles. So unlike elders and deacons, apostles had certain rights and responsibilities over multiple churches. But for this lesson, we're just going to concentrate on elders, whereas in our next session we'll uh, tackle deacons and also ask about apostles, whether or not the office of apostle is alive and well today, or was it just a temporary office, but that's next time. Today we want to just talk about elders, and so what we're going to do is we're going to ask 10 questions. I tried to get to 12, that's a much more biblical number, uh, but my lesson was like an hour and a half, so I had to cut it down to, uh, to only 10. And so these are the, uh, the, the 10 questions that we're going to consider uh, this morning as it relates to elders. First, what terms are used to describe this office within the church? What terms are used within Scripture uh, to describe this office within the church? And we'll see that there are three terms uh, that are used to describe this, uh, this office. The first one being pastor, uh, the Greek word there is poimen. Literally, it means shepherd, which is a function of elders to shepherd the flock. So pastor just means shepherd, that we are to feed the flock and lead the flock to green pastures. This is one of the more common Old Testament expressions for leaders of God's people. It's obviously used of Christ himself. He says that I am the good shepherd. So he's the chief shepherd, whereas pastors... Uh, of local churches are, uh, you might call them, under-shepherds. And so when discussing elders, uh, we see this, uh, this uh, language that's used a number of times in Scriptures. In, in, in particular, the verbal form is used multiple times. But what's interesting is that the noun is only used once. Interestingly enough, in the ESV, that's the English Standard Version, that's the translation that we use here at Parkway, the word isn't even translated as pastor. Instead, it just is translated as shepherd. So in Ephesians 4.11, it says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, if you're reading the NASB or the NIV or various other translations, they would have the word pastor. But again, pastor means shepherd. Those are, uh, are synonymous. And, uh, and so in the context of talking about shepherds of the local church, then we might use uh, the word pastor. Now, that's, that's the first word that is, uh, that's used uh, to describe the office within the church. The second word that's used is elder. The Greek word is presbyteros. Uh, you might be familiar with the Presbyterian church. It uh, gets its name from uh, this particular Greek word. It's the Greek term that was often used for Jewish leaders of a synagogue. Jewish leaders of a synagogue, and so they're called elders. You see this language in 1 Timothy 5, uh, 17 through 20. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And then it goes on from there. 
Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So that's the second one. So the first one is pastor, poimain. The second one is elder, presbyteros. The third one is overseer, often uh, sometimes translated as uh, bishop. Uh, the Greek word is episkopos. Uh, you see that in the word episcopalian, the episcopalian uh, church. It was a, uh, a term from Roman culture for those who represent the emperor in, in administrating his authority to a particular city or a particular area. And so that's kind of what, uh, what, uh, what pastors, what elders, what overseers are doing in the local church. They are uh, kind of representing the authority of Christ within the context of this little locale that is the local church. And so you see that uh, language, that word, episkopos, uh, translated as overseer, used in Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Or Titus 1.7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must, be, um, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered and so forth. 1 Timothy 3.2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. So you see these three words, poimain, pastor, presbyteros, elder, and episkopos, overseer, sometimes bishop, and uh, so that's the first question. What are the terms that are used for this office? That leads us to the second question, which is, are those different offices, or are those really uh, just different words for the same office? And as we saw in our, uh, our talk last week on church polity, that is church governance, some traditions distinguish these three terms as if they're three different levels of authority. Now, there's various ways that you could do that. In a real formal sense, you have the Episcopalian church, whereas they have uh, priests, uh, and then above those priests, they have bishops, and then above them, they have archbishops, and then above them, they have cardinals, and then above them, they have uh, the, you know, the pope or the uh, you know, archbishop of Canterbury or something like that. Uh, so that's a very formal way that you can distinguish. You could say that pastors are one level, and then above them you have elders, and then above them you have uh, bishops or, or overseers or something like that. That's the formal way to do it. But uh, not only do we see that formally, but informally, even in uh, other styles of church uh, governance, you can see this tendency. For example, there are certain churches out there where some elders have more authority than other elders. You have kind of regular elders, and then you have super elders, mega elders, whatever it might be. Or you have certain churches with uh, pastors who are not considered elders. This was actually my position at a previous church. I had the title of pastor, but was not an elder. I was kind of uncomfortable with that inconsistency. So I uh, went to some of the elders of the church, and I said, uh, hey, I think we need to do something about this. Either make me an elder or change my title. So they changed my title. My uh, attempt at a coup failed. Uh, and so you, you have all of these different ways that certain churches distinguish from these offices that uh, pastor and uh, an elder and overseer are somehow uh, different. There's some sort of distinction there. And even though a lot of churches do, the, do that, treat these as separate uh, offices, I believe that the three terms are synonymous for the same office. And thus, pastors and elders and overseers and bishops, they're just four ways of referring to the exact same office. All right, so let, let me give you an example of, of this. Consider the titles chief executive and commander in chief and president. Now, are, are, are those three different uh, people? Are those three different positions? Are those three different offices? No, they're all referring to the same person. They're all referring to the same office. They're just different uh, terms. They're, ju they're just different ways of, uh, of uh, reflecting the same uh, office. And so likewise with pastors and elders and overseers and bishops. So why do I think that all of these terms are uh, referring to the exact same office? Well, the reason is simple, because the terms are used interchangeably throughout Scripture. Let me give you four examples of that. 
of the terms uh, bishop and elder and uh, overseer and pastor all being used interchangeably. The first one is from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So in 1 Timothy 3, Paul is going to list out qualifications for episkopos, that is uh, overseers in the ESV translation, whereas Titus 1 is going to list out qualifications for presbyteros. Same qualifications pointing to the fact that they're the same office. 1 Timothy 3 talks about qualifications for episkopos, Titus 1 qualifications for presbyteros. Same qualifications uh, implying that they are the same office. A second example, Titus 1 itself uses both terms. In verse 5, it says to appoint elders. And then in verse 7, it says uh, to, uh, that these are the qualifications for overseers. Let me read that section of text uh, in context so that you can see the strength of this argument. Starting in verse 5 of Titus 1, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, presbyteros, in every town as I have directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, episkopos, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And so you have within uh, the span of just a couple of verses, you have Paul using both words to refer to the exact same um, office or person. A third example of where these are used interchangeably is in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. It says, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, that's a presbyteros, of the church to come to him. And then a, uh, a little bit later in Acts 20, 28, uh, you have Paul actually talking to these people who are called elders, presbyteros, and he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So that's another example of where they're used interchangeably. And then lastly, uh, although there's others uh, last that we'll mention here, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, notice here references to elders, notice reference to shepherding, and also to oversight. So you have uh, elders, you have pastors, shepherds, and then you have oversight, overseers. Uh, from 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so pastor, elder, overseer, bishop, all of these are used interchangeably throughout Scripture, which implies that they all refer to the same office. In other words, there should not be uh, some pastors who are not elders or some elders who are not overseers or whatever it, uh, it might be. If you're a pastor, you're an elder. If you're an elder, you're a pastor. If you're a pastor, you're an overseer and so forth. And so um, that's why we uh, believe that they are um, synonymous and that there's, uh, they represent just one office and not uh, multiple offices. By the way, if this is true, if the terms are synonymous, and if they all refer to the same office, then this is a strong argument to imply congregationalism as discussed last week, because it means that bishops and overseers do not constitute some sort of separate office above pastor or elder, as in the case of Episcopalian forms of governance, or even Presbyterian forms of governance uh, to some degree. So that's the second question. Are those different offices or the same? Third, what are the qualifications for elders? We see the qualifications in two different passages, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. 1 Timothy 3 says this, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation 
uh, of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. That's 1 Timothy 3. In Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, you also see Paul write, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, most of that is fairly self-explanatory, but uh, future questions will kind of uh, clarify a few points of confusion or questions that you might uh, have. By the way, the, the qualifications here that you see for elders, for overseers, for bishops, for pastors, these qualifications really are going to significantly overlap with the qualifications of, uh, of deacons, with the exception of having the ability to teach. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, no deacon has the ability to teach. Some deacons very well might be able to teach. So it doesn't mean that elders are able to teach and deacons aren't. It simply means that elders have to be able to teach, whereas that's not a requirement for the diaconate. That's not a requirement to be a deacon. You don't have to be able to teach, even though some deacons might have that gift. Additionally, notice that even though these are requirements for elders or pastors, uh, they're also just general attributes of Christian maturity and sanctification. Uh, these aren't characteristics of just super-Christians. They're basic virtues of, uh, of all who love Jesus, which means that whether or not you ever aspire to be an elder, you absolutely have to strive to meet these characteristics, these character traits. Every one of us in this room should strive to be self-controlled. We should strive to be not addicted to wine, to be above reproach, etc. So just because you're never called to be an elder, that doesn't mean that you can go out and get drunk and kick someone in the spleen and steal their car or something like that. So these are the qualifications for elders, and uh, by and large, they overlap with deacons. By and large, also, they are just general characteristics of Christian maturity. In other words, uh, the requirement for elders is simply that they be mature believers, and, uh, and so it gives some of the different qualifications of how we might know that there is uh, a degree of holiness and godliness and maturity. Next question, can women serve as elders? This is a spicy question. The answer to that is no, that the office of elder is reserved for men. And we know this by virtue of a few lines of reasoning First, because all of the pronouns of the elder qualifications are masculine. It talks about he and his. Second, the text refers to a husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. We'll talk about what that means here shortly. Um, so those are, the, those are the first two reasons. But really, we infer this most clearly from the larger theological context of Scripture and the immediate context of First uh, Timothy chapter 3. So when it comes to the larger theological context of Scripture, uh, we have uh, this sort of idea that we see uh, that emerges from Scripture uh, that uh, has been traditionally called complementarianism uh, as opposed to egalitarianism. Let me, uh, let me explain briefly what those mean. Egalitarians hold that because men and women are equal in worth and value and dignity and essence and all of these sorts of things, that therefore... They should have equal access to every single role and responsibility within the church. Kind of think uh, Michael Jordan, Mia Hamm, old commercial. Anything you can do, I can do better. So women can preach, women can teach men, women can serve as pastors and elders, and so forth. Complementarians, on the other hand, agree that women are equal in essence and worth and value and dignity and all of those kinds of things. Uh, complementarianism is not male chauvinism or misogyny or anything like that, but also recognizes that God has ordained distinct roles and responsibilities for men and women for our flourishing, for our good. And the way that that works itself out in the local church is that God has given the responsibility for teaching and preaching uh, to men and exercising authority over the congregation 
to men. That that is an office that is reserved for men. He is given the role of headship, that is loving sacrificial, uh, sacrificial leadership and authority to men. So we've taught on this before in a number of different contexts. If this is new, if this is confusing, if this sounds archaic or it sounds misogynistic or something like that, will you please go and listen to some of that audio? Come and chat with us. We'd love to talk uh, to you and uh, buy you a cup of coffee and chat about that. So that's the larger theological context uh, of Scripture um, that we can use to kind of uh, infer the idea that uh, the office of elder is reserved for men. But there's even something that's even clearer than that, and that's the immediate uh, literary context of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just a few verses before talking about this at the beginning of 1 Timothy 3, at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes this, Let a warm woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So listen to me. If women shouldn't exercise authority over or teach men, then they can't serve as elders, as overseers, as bishops, as pastors, because elders by definition are those who oversee teaching and authority in a church. In other words, if the uh, functions of the office are prohibited, then the office itself is surely prohibited. If a woman cannot teach or exercise authority over men, what does it mean to have a woman who is an elder if, by definition, they are those who teach and exercise authority over men and, uh, and over women, by the way? But, uh, so that's the, uh, that's the answer to that question. Can a woman serve as an elder? No, women are vital to the flourishing and functioning of a healthy and good and vibrant church and yet, Scripture has for their good and for the church's good and for their joy and the church's joy uh, given these unique roles and responsibilities to both men and uh, women such that men are the ones who exercise uh, headship uh, or authority within the church. Next question. How many elders should a church have? Simple answer to that is enough to do what elders are supposed to do and to carry out the mission of the church. Some churches might have too many. If you're a church of 20 people and uh, all 10 of the men there are elders, that's probably too many. Others have too few. For instance, if you only have one, then there's no plurality, which as we will uh, shortly talk about is a necessity. But even if you have a plurality, you might have too few if you can't adequately lead and teach and protect and disciple the congregation. But the Bible doesn't really say how many that you need with the exception of just implying that it's enough to do what you got to do. Uh, a second ago, I said that having only one elder is unhealthy because there's no plurality. So let's talk about that. Why do churches need multiple elders, need multiple pastors, overseers? Again, I'm trying to use these words synonymously so that in your mind, you don't uh, divorce the terms. You don't uh, segregate those different uh, terms as if they refer to different offices. And uh, so why is it that churches need multiple elders or pastors? Why is the single pastor model unhealthy and unbiblical and unwise? Well, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, the first one is just a biblical reason that references to elders are always in the plural throughout Scripture. There's never a point in Scripture where Paul says, tell this to the elder or the pastor. But instead he says, tell it to the elders and the pastors. Plural. Acts 14.23, when they had, appoint, had appointed elders for them in every church, in every church they appointed elders, plural. Uh, or Titus 1, which we already read. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town, as I directed you. Hebrews 13.17, obey your leaders, plural, and submit to them, plural. So that's the first reason. Biblically, references are always in the plural. The second reason is logical. Why is plurality such a good and necessary and biblical thing? Well, there's a few reasons for that. First off, because no one person is godly enough to imitate completely. There are things about me that I think are somewhat admirable, and there are things about me that I would hate for you to copy or to imitate. Likewise for Zach, 
or Wade or Mike or Steve or so forth. So that's the first reason. No one person is godly enough to imitate completely. A second reason is because having one pastor stifles discipleship. Not only does it have a tendency to kind of lead to this cult of personality, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Zach, I follow Jeff, I follow Wade, whatever uh, it might be. Not only is that the case, but one pastor or one elder can't adequately do the job if that involves teaching and preaching and shepherding and meeting with members and meeting with visitors and discipling people and working with marriages and all of those sorts of things. A third reason that having uh, plurality is a good thing is because having only one pastor stifles that pastor's development and discipleship. It makes the pastor less well-rounded. When I come to services and I'm not teaching, or I come to services and I'm not preaching, I'm spiritually formed as I listen to the other guys teach or preach. There's something uh, that is very good for me in those moments. Likewise, when I go to elder meetings and I hear robust elder discussion, when I lose uh, a discussion in that room, which I often do, I might come down on a, on, on a, uh, on a side that, the, that doesn't actually win the argument, uh, that's, uh, that's good for my humility. I'm humbled, I'm edified by their complimentary gifts to recognize that the, uh, the I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. And, uh, and so it forces me into a position of humility. It forces Zach into a position of humility. It forces Mike and Dave and so forth. So that's another reason, because uh, having one pastor stifles that pastor's development and discipleship. A fourth reason, it provides this better preservation against drift, whether it's theological drift or moral drift. Wh- which is more likely Right? Which, which is more likely, that one person begins to be corrupted by bad theology or gives in to some moral failure, or that all six of our elders gives in to uh, moral corruption or begins to drift into some sort of heretical view? Hopefully it's not likely that either of those are true, but which one is more likely, that one would do it or that all six of us would cheat on our wives, or that all six of us would uh, find Pelagianism or Arianism convincing or something like that. Obviously, um, it's much easier for one person to drift, and so this is a better preservation against drift. I could go on, but hopefully you get the idea, hopefully you get the gist for why plurality is a good thing. As Scripture says, there's wisdom in having an abundance of counselors. Some are more heart, others more head. Some are quicker to act, some are slower, some are introverted, some extroverted, some are older, some are younger, some are bearded, some of us can afford razors, whatever it might be. As Proverbs 11 says, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So all of that is to say there should be plurality, but just for the sake of being as comprehensive as possible and giving you all the exceptions, I just want to note there are potential exceptions but those are really, really extreme examples, so we don't want to make the exception the rule. For example, if I move to some little town in Afghanistan where there's no Christian presence and begin to preach the gospel, and I see a few conversions and start a little church, there will probably be a period of time where I might be the only elder. That isn't necessarily unfaithful, but the longer that condition persists, the more dangerous that is for me and for the church. So I should be working the entire time to raise up elders, to disciple another man, to prepare him for the role, to pray toward that end, uh, etc. By the way, I'm not planning uh, on moving to Afghanistan uh, anytime in the near future. My point is uh, we should not make the extreme example the actual rule. So in general, the pattern, the prescription for an individual local church is for there to be a plurality of men who are uh, equipped and qualified uh, and ordained uh, into the office of pastor or elder. Next question, must elders be older? This comes up uh, because the word presbuteros, presbuteros is translated in some contexts as older men. Uh, we see that older, uh, that original connotation even in the word elder and the kind of relationship with the word elderly. So does that mean that church elders must be elderly, that they must be older? Well, not necessarily for a few reasons. 
First, because Scripture itself doesn't give some sort of age restriction. Go back and look at the list of qualifications in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. Being of a certain age is not one of them. The only reason to think that age would be a qualification is because presbyteros can mean older men uh, in, or older man in certain contexts. But reach far back into your memory to when we taught on what are called hermeneutical fallacies. We discuss what's called an etymological fallacy, uh, which means that the root of a word doesn't necessarily tell us the meaning of the word. For instance, the, the, the word awful originally meant full of awe. But if I use that word today, I definitely don't mean that, right? If I say, you are awful, I don't mean that as a good thing. You are full of awe. No, I mean that in a very bad way. So just because the, the origin of the word meant something, that doesn't mean that that word actually has that connotation uh, or uh, denotation today. For example, consider the word senior, right? It, it originally referred to age, senior citizen, uh, even the word senile, that prefix seen uh, there. But are seniors in high school necessarily older than juniors? Are seniors necessarily older than sophomores or freshmen? No. Even though it originally carried the connotation of age, it no longer does. Senior doesn't mean someone who is of a certain age, but rather one who is in a certain grade. That's important. Senior doesn't refer to someone who is of a particular age, but rather someone who is in a particular Grade. Likewise, the term elder, as employed in the context of church leadership, no longer carries the connotation of age. It doesn't mean one who is of a certain age, but rather one who is in a certain office. So that's the first reason, because Scripture itself doesn't give some sort of age restriction. Second, other terms like episkopos or poimain don't have any sort of age restriction uh, or age implication whatsoever. Third, Paul commands Timothy to not allow anyone to look down upon him for his age. So he must have been relatively young, and yet he was involved in appointing and training elders. Those who require elders to be older seem to be in danger of doing the very thing that Paul warns against, looking down upon someone for their age. There's other reasons that I would say that an elder doesn't necessarily have to be elder, but you get the gist. So am I saying that age is just absolutely irrelevant? No, I'm not saying that. There's wisdom in having some sort of standard. Well, what's that standard? What's the formula? What's the mathematical uh, equation? How old must you be? And I think that standard is old enough to meet the moral qualifications and to fulfill the functional requirements. We here at Parkway have everything from the early 30s to the early 70s. At some point you're too young, we will never have a you know, seven-year-old elder and at some point, you're probably too old. We will probably never have a 105-year-old elder or something like that. But Scripture doesn't give us any sort of arbitrary number, so that's where we have to just press in and, uh, and trust the Spirit to give us wisdom uh, as we are dealing with uh, these rare or extreme cases. <coughs> Next question. Can a divorced person be an elder? This is another spicy one. This is typically asked because Scripture says that elders must be the husband of one wife. In Greek, mias gunaikos aner. Literally, that means one woman man. Now, a lot of people take this verse to mean that an elder cannot have ever been divorced. You might have heard that taught. I heard that uh, taught in certain contexts whenever I first got saved. I don't think that that is actually what that phrase means, but let me demonstrate that. There's four views that are sometimes uh, held up as interpretations of what this phrase means. Mias, gunaikos, aner, the husband of one wife, or one woman, man. One view says that elders must be married. The second view says that elders must not be polygamous. The third view means that elders must have been married only once in their life. And the fourth view says that elders must be faithful to their wife if they are married. By the way, I think that it's the fourth view, but let me prove that. So the first view, elders must be married. Must you be married in order to be an elder? I think that would be really strange in light of the fact that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that singleness is actually preferable for ministry. For those who have that gift, if you have the gift of singleness, if you don't burn with passion, if you're able uh, to be faithful as a, a single and to devote yourself to ministry, Paul says that's actually a better thing. That's not something you hear taught in churches all that often. 
Paul himself was single. I would hardly think that Paul would think of himself as being disqualified from that office. Surely whatever the qualifications of being an apostle are, are even more stringent than being an elder. And so I don't think that this is what it means any more than the next phrase, whenever it talks about having faithful children, means that if you don't have children, you can't serve as an elder. Rather than mandating that you must have a wife or you must have kids, I think it's instead giving qualifications for those who do have wife or kids. If you have a wife, if you have kids, this is the condition. It's not saying that you must meet this condition of having a wife or kids. Second, is it forbidden polygamy? That's a really interesting question because I think that the phrase does forbid polygamy. I just don't think that uh, that is what Paul is explicitly referring to. In other words, I don't think that Paul is thinking in his mind, I want to forbid polygamists. Uh, I, th- I think instead he is thinking, I want to forbid adulterers and uh, those who persist in, uh, in adultery. I'm not saying that someone who has committed adultery could never. Uh, I think there is uh, a possibility of forgiveness in those kinds of things. But the problem that he's addressing here isn't polygamy. Uh, we know that from 1 Timothy 5.9, which says that widows being cared for by the church, so 1 Timothy 5.9 same, uh, same book as, uh, as 1 Timothy chapter 3. says that widows being cared for the church must have been a one-woman man. It's the exact same phrase, just uh, in different order. One-woman, uh, one-man woman instead of one-woman man. Again, almost the exact same phrase. So whatever Paul is forbidding for elders in 1 Timothy 3, it seems like he's also forbidding for widows in 1 Timothy 5. And so if Paul's concern was polygamy in chapter 3, then it would stand to reason that his concern in chapter 5 would be polyandry, which is the practice of having multiple husbands. And yet, polyandry was repugnant in that cultural setting, so it, it, it's highly unlikely that he would be addressing that. In other words, I think polygamy is excluded by implication, but that's not Paul's main point. Now, what about the view that elders must have only been married once? They can't ever have been Divorce, that's how a lot of churches uh, take this. I don't think that that is the best interpretation for a few, few reasons. First, for exegetical reasons, there are much easier ways to say that someone can't have ever been divorced, including just saying they can't have ever been divorced. There is a way to say that in Greek that would be a lot easier than this ambiguous phrase. And so I think that's the first reason A second reason is contextual. It seems like all the other attributes are about someone's current status, not their past. At one point in my life, I was just about everything that it says that an elder must not be. I was not sober-minded. I was not self-controlled. I was not above reproach. But I don't think that that disqualifies me today. So it would seem strange that all of a sudden some past action like divorce, would necessarily disqualify you. As we'll talk about shortly, it could disqualify you, depending on the circumstances, but I don't think that it necessarily does so. I don't think that it it just kind of carte blanche says, if you've been divorced, you are uh, therefore necessarily disqualified from the office. So you have exegetical reasons, you have contextual reasons, and then you have also logical implication. Notice, uh, for example, that interpreting the text that way would also imply that you couldn't be a widower who remarried, even though the Bible explicitly says that you can remarry if your spouse passes away. So there's exegetical reasons, there's contextual reasons, there's logical reasons. I have very, very strong views on marriage and divorce and remarriage, and yet even so, I don't think that it's most likely that Paul's addressing divorce here in this passage. I think it's simply speaking of the ongoing fidelity of a man to his wife. and In fact, some translations uh, translate this as simply faithful to his wife because that's the idea. Again, is to be a one-woman man, to not be an adulterer, to not be addicted to porn, to not have a reputation for being too flirty, to not be a swinger, whatever it might be. Now, that being the case, I think divorce can be disqualifying in certain cases. Divorce itself doesn't necessarily disqualify you But the circumstances should be explored because they might demonstrate some sort of disqualifying character flaw. Like, for instance, your wife divorced you because you're a drunkard, because you're violent, 
because you're abusive, because you're adulterous, because you're unfaithful in managing your household well. So would divorce prevent someone from serving as an elder at Parkway? I think the answer to that is it would depend entirely on the circumstances of that divorce. Are they today above reproach? Do they have a good reputation of being faithful to the current spouse if remarried or chaste, if single or whatever uh, it might be? Let me read from uh, Alexander Strauch's Biblical Eldership because I think this captures uh, the, the heart really well. The phrase, the husband of one wife, is meant to be a positive statement that expresses faithful monogamous marriage. In English, we would say faithful and true to one woman or a one woman man. Negatively, the phrase prohibits all deviation from faithful monogamous marriage. Thus, it would prohibit an elder from polygamy, concubinage, homosexuality, and or any questionable sexual relationship. Positively, Scripture says that the candidate for eldership must be a one-woman man, meaning he has an exclusive relationship with one woman. Such a man is above reproach in his sexual and marital life. Next question, must an elder's kids be believers? This comes up because of the way the ESV renders Titus 1. Uh, But again, I want to make sure we interpret this in light of the context. You can translate this as his children are believers in Titus chapter 1. Other translations, on the other hand, uh, have it translated as his children are faithful. In fact, that might even be a footnote in your particular copy of the ESV. It is in mine. Either reading is, uh, is, uh, is valid. The word can mean believer or faithful, depending on the context. And I personally think that faithful is the better reading in the, uh, the context and that this passage is concerned with your children being submissive and obedient uh, and faithful to your leadership, not necessarily that they be regenerate believers. There's three reasons uh, that I would uh, hold this position. The first one is because the Bible doesn't hold you responsible for your kids' faith. That's only by God's grace as a result of election. So the Bible doesn't hold you responsible for your kids' faith. It does hold you responsible for your kids' faithfulness, which should come about through discipline. In other words, the concern is whether the elder has been faithful and not whether the child has faith. This is why Paul writes, if someone does not manage his own household, how will he manage the church? In other words, the concern is whether or not the elder candidate has been a good and faithful steward of his home. If you're a good and faithful steward of your home, your children tend to be faithful. That does not necessarily mean that your children are regenerate. That's the first reason. The second reason is because the context is going to clarify the phrase. Titus says, and his children are believers, or and his children are faithful. But look immediately after that. It says, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Again, those have to do with faithfulness. They have to do with obedience. They have to do with submission. And then look at the way that 1 Timothy describes it. It says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So it seems like the concern isn't that the kids are unbelievers, but rather that they are faithful, uh, that, uh, that they're not getting drunk, that they're not sleeping around, that they're not disobedient to their parents, etc. And then the last reason that I don't think that it means that they have to be believers is because logically it doesn't seem to make sense. It would mean that elders can never have new kids. Let me give you a really good example of this. One of our elders, Wade Catlin, He had two faithful teenagers, then they adopted two kids from China, and then they had another baby. So should he step down from the elder body now that he has kids who aren't of an age to believe? Of course not. Now, if 10 years from now or 15 years from now, his kids are, you know, each week they're lighting the bathroom on fire, they're running down the hallway shirtless, you know, screaming obscenities while pushing old ladies, uh, little old ladies down. That's a different conversation. But simply adopting into his household unbelieving children doesn't now disqualify him. He's done something that's good and faithful for the sake of the kingdom. That doesn't disqualify him from the office. And so again, Alexander Strauch says, the contrast is made not between believing and unbelieving children, but between obedient, respectful children and lawless, uncontrolled children. At what age is this required? At what age is it no longer required? The text doesn't say. That's where we would need to wrestle as elders. At some point, 
they're old enough that there would be an expectation of a certain level of obedience and submission and faithfulness. And then at some point, they also they move out of your home. It would probably no longer be a requirement. For instance, if uh, Dave or Dr. Steve, who have uh, adult ch- children that are out of the house, if one of them suddenly went off the deep end, we would then say, well, we recognize they're out of the house, that they've been faithful um, as, as parents, and yet uh, the kid is no longer kind of under their uh, home, and therefore they're not disqualified from the office. Second to last question, what do elders do? A few different things that you see in Scripture. First, they teach and preach. Ephesians 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. In fact, uh, you might uh, put those together. A lot of people call them the pastors slash teachers uh, because uh, grammatically it seems like they are linked together. And what's the, orig- the, the uh, context? Uh, uh, that the church might be uh, equipped so that they might no longer be tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Or 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So all elders must be able to teach, but that doesn't mean that all elders necessarily uh, have to labor in preaching and teaching. It says especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What's really interesting is that the most common command in the pastoral epistles is to preach, to teach, to protect doctrine, to protect the theology of the church. Why is it that we are so passionate about doctrine here at Parkway? That's like asking a doctor why he's so passionate about health or asking a mathematician why he likes numbers. It's literally the main thing that we do. According to Ephesians 4, Pastors and teachers exist to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and the way we do it is through teaching, teaching people to think correctly so that they might then love correctly and live correctly. So teach and preach, related to that, uh, elders are to protect the church from false teachers. We see that in Acts 20. Uh, they are to exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine, 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 3, Titus 1. They are to lead the church in vision and mission and direction, Hebrews 13, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5. They are to pray for the physical and spiritual health of the congregation, James 5 and Acts 6. They are to judge doctrinal issues, Acts 15. In other words, elders shepherd and oversee and lead and care for the local church. They are to teach and exercise authority in everything that kind of falls under that umbrella. Last question, am I called to be an elder? First, let me say this. Aspiring to the office of an elder is a noble task. If you desire to be an elder, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're power-hungry or that you're proud or arrogant. You could be, but you could also just have this good biblical aspiration. That's what Paul writes there. Anyone who aspires to the office uh, aspires a noble thing. Then again, let me say this, and let me be really clear. James says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So aspiring to the office is a noble task, And I would say if you aspire to it, that could be a very good thing, but you need to also count the cost in addition to that. Let me also say that being a deacon is also a good task. Some churches treat deacons like JV elders when in reality they're different offices necessitating different gifts and talents. Both are necessary for the healthy functioning of the body. Sometimes a man might be qualified to fit into either offices, but oftentimes you'll find guys who fit much more into one than the other, and that's not a bad thing. In other words, I think some of you should aspire to be deacons and not feel any sense of guilt or shame as if that's somehow a lesser calling than eldership. I think a lot of times a man aspires towards something And he's just been raised in this context where he thinks that it is shameful to not aspire to the office of elder, when in reality, his gifts, his passions, his talents all fit much more readily into the diaconate 
And so I would encourage you to aspire for that. If that's really where your passions and gifts and talents and so forth naturally lead. But let me ask this question. How do I know if I'm called to be an elder? Let me give you three words that kind of can help you parse through that. Desire, giftedness, and opportunity. First, desire. Do you aspire to it? If you don't aspire to it, if you don't desire it, then it probably isn't for you. Again, not many of you should become teachers because there will be a greater judgment. The amount of uh, the weight on your soul, the, uh, the gravity of making decisions that affect people's lives, of working through marriage issues, of protecting uh, teaching, all of these sorts of things, of making these sorts of decisions. If you don't love it, it's going to crush you. So do you desire it? Secondly, giftedness. And by that, I mean a few things. One, do you meet the qualifications? If not, then it isn't for you, at least currently. So you might right now be a man who is really given to anger, and right now you're not called to be an elder. But maybe in five years or 10 years or 15 years, as you mature in that area, maybe that door opens up for you. But not only does that mean do you meet the qualifications, it also means how do you spend your time? Like, do you actually have pastoral gifting? Do you enjoy studying? Do you, do you enjoy discipling others? Do you love theology and doctrine? Like, does that just make your heart race? Loving those things is essential, but at the same time, it's also insufficient. Some of you might love it, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're called to the office, because I'd ask this question. Has that passion been affirmed in others Uh, affirmed by others as a gift that you have? Are people generally edified and encouraged by your uh, teaching or preaching or counsel or whatever uh, it might be? And then lastly, opportunity. Does the church have a need? Far too many guys rush into eldership rather than waiting for it to come to them. If you aspire to the office, let me encourage you, begin functioning right now, doing those things. Is that how you're spending your time already? In other words, most of the time an elder is already eldering before they actually get the title. They're attending services and classes as often as they can because they want to be here. They want to love the the church and serve the church. They're serving in various ways and looking for other ways to serve. They're making disciples. They're leading a community group that they're committed to. They're studying scripture. They're reading theology. They're discipling a couple of guys informally and, uh, and so forth. And if you think, I don't have time to do all those kinds of things, you're not going to have time then to be an elder. This is an exhausting task. But some of you are called to it. And if that's the case, let us know. We'd love to have conversations. That's eldership. I'm sure there's tons of other questions, so feel free to email us. We'd love to chat, but we'll pick it up next time with deacons and also with the question of, uh, of apostles. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have this morning to uh, dig into your word, to think about uh, the offices that you have given to your church for our, uh, for our flourishing. I pray uh, for you to, uh, to help us, Lord, to help us to better understand what you have called um, uh, the officers of a church to, uh, to be, and, uh, and, and that you might uh, continue just to uh, bless Parkway with, uh, with men who uh, would love uh, you and serve you in your body. And so uh, we bless your name this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.